welcome to part one of a special edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks about the fascinating topic of how to live longer and enjoy a better quality of life. I'm Tom Malloy and with me today is Professor Roseanne Kenny, who has just published a book called Age Proof, the science of living a longer and healthier life. Roseanne has used the findings from one of Trinity's most exciting research projects known as TILDA, which has followed 9,000 adults from the age of 50 upwards to really get to grips with why we age. Her book and Tilda look at everything from sex to diet, physical and brain health, genetics, childhood experience, friendships, finance, and things like the benefits of yoga and cold showers. Roseanne, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Roseanne, it's hard to know where to begin. This is, uh, I mean, I suppose one thing to say is this book has been phenomenally successful by by academic standards. It's been in the top seller list. It's been number one in the nonfiction here for the last four weeks. It's been translated into 12 different languages. Is is that your experience that it's almost a, a universal thing, this, this desire to live a long and healthy life? I, I was just, uh, slightly taken aback, it's fair to say, by how much enthusiasm there was for the book and therefore for the for the subject, how hungry people are to have evidence-based information with respect to how they can be in control themselves of their aging process and to also understand some of the biology behind uh, recommendations that we've known for a long time like diet and exercise but you know why and how and that therefore is more motivating and provides more choice for individuals so it's it's been really ex an exciting journey so far and look in a minute we're going to jump right into to your conclusions and and and, and tips i suppose <laughs> about how to to live that kind of life but but it is interesting that people people want to know that this is science based and, and I think we should just talk for a minute about you know what you actually do here in Trinity and uh, and how you became interested in in this whole topic because you hold the chair of medical gerontology here in Trinity and you're also head of department you're the founding director of uh, the new state of the art clinical research institute for aging at St James's Hospital the Mercer's Institute for Successful Aging or MISA which has 300 staff You've published over 600 scientific public publications to date, including more than 450 research articles. So you know, I, I think it's important that for people to realize this is not top of the head stuff. This is based on a huge amount of research by you, by colleagues here in Dublin, but also further afield. Um, how, how did you become interested in this? Why, why did you decide to devote your, your life to, to research in this area? When I was a young doctor, um, I did virtually all of my postgraduate training in London and um, I was working in the then Hammersmith Hospital um, and you know, this, this age cohort appealed to me, but also it was clear at that time, and that's over 30 years ago now, that there was very little research um, in this area. It was almost a given that people would get older and there wasn't anything we could do about it. Um, and, and even in terms of clinical practice, there were very few guidelines that took into consideration the complexity that is very often the case 
with respect to clinical disorders in older persons. In other words, it's it's really unusual to have just one thing wrong with you mm. um, when you're 80 or mid 80s. You know, usually there are two or three things at least going on at the one time and they interact and the and the medications and other interventions for them interact and there was so little information on what the best approach was so that fascinated me and it was clear to me that this was an emerging area of huge interest and and, and just relevant to to everybody and we, we we really seem to have here in the west anyway kind of changed our whole approach to asia haven't we when i when i was a boy old people kind of walked around in dark clothes and and they just dressed in a completely different way uh, and, and and almost section themselves off from society whereas that just doesn't seem to be happening do you think that there has been a um kind of a revolution i guess in in our in our attitude to age? well i think that's the nub of the problem isn't it are the are the issue um the 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 numbers of people aged 50 60 70 now in our world has just increased so much also our attitudes are very different you know today's 50 year old is not the 50 year old of the last generation or like or likewise the 60 year old today is is very different from yesterday's 60 year old um You'll be aware of the baby boomers, which is a kind of a term just to describe a person born between 1946 and 64. Um, and the baby boomer generation makes up a substantial portion of today's world's population, especially in developed countries. And their expectations are, are very, very different. And their their life course experience is very different. So it's you're, you're right. I mean, today's um if you like older person is 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 a very different to that of of our predecessors um, and those retiring in their 60s can expect to live another 25 years at least and remember this is the generation of 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 liberty access to education new music genres etc so you know their voices will be heard um, and they also are are hungry for control over their future well, the baby boomers get a get a bad rap in in general these days, don't they? So it's good to hear that they're doing something right, even if it is uh, in typical baby boomer fashion, looking after themselves. Well, you I mean, in a way, I think in the past we tended to be fatalistic about age, and and this is for me perhaps the, well, this is definitely one of the big takeaways from your research, which is you suggest that genes only account for about twenty percent of the aging process, and of course we can't really change our genes, at least not yet. And that, but the, the the main reasons for aging are the other eighty percent. If you were to just list off the the main things that contribute to that eighty percent, uh, in other words, really the main things that contribute to aging, what would you what would you list? Well, there's no doubt that diet is incredibly important. I mean, if you think about what we are, we're made up of trillions of cells. And the function of those cells is to provide energy for whatever organ they're in so that organ can function for our survival and reproduction. So that's basically what we're about. So energy is terribly important to our system and our energy comes from our food intake. And therefore, diet is is, is important, matters. Now, we've heard that for a long time and that science is correct 
and we hear different things almost every week with respect to diet, what's good and what's not so good. Last week, there was a very nice paper from Oxford, you know, supporting um, the possible carcinogenic effects of red meat. And yet a few weeks ago, there was another paper from Harvard suggesting that this wasn't the case. And in fact, we've evolved as, as carnivores and, you know, we need red meat. So so I, I try to step back from that, look at that science, aware that there are you know, changing views almost weekly on in, in this, but what's core and what's consistent is that those who are long-lived predominantly have plant-based diets. And another consistency is low salt, low sugar, and none or little processed foods. And I think if people can retain that, um, then, in other words, the Mediterranean diet with those other threes, no salt, no sugar, no processed foods, then that's, that's very consistent. And we know the evidence is strong that that's the best um, diet that we have evidence for at the moment with respect to cardiovascular disease particularly. And cardiovascular disease is the commonest cause for um, death still in the Western world. So let's take diet as number one. And Roseanne, can, can, can I be personally, can you tell me about your own diet? I mean, how, how has your research influenced, I suppose, what you eat? Yeah, well, well, um, I'm not vegetarian or vegan, but I have cut down significantly on red meat. I try to eat fish twice a week. Um, I, I have very um, much a plant-based diet. I also have, over the last 18 months, two years, um, adhered to a caloric restriction diet, which means I the, the fast that suits me best is a 16-hour overnight fast and then eight, eating within an eight-hour window during the day. That eight-hour window research is, is very persuasive um, in terms of caloric restriction. And there's a lot of very good animal work and evolving human work to support caloric restriction. Uh, so the, the eight, just to give you an example of, of that particular diet, the eight hour eating within an eight hour window and fasting for 16, in, in animal models, in, in mice and rat studies, if you give two groups of rats the same amount of food but one eat, can eat that food over a 24-hour period and the other is confined to an eight-hour period. Same amount of food, the, 20, the rats eating over the 24-hour period become obese, whereas those who have confined their intake to an eight-hour period do not. So that's just one example. And the whole thing is predicated on us reverting to a ketotic cycle rather than having persistent um glucose in our system so as our glucose in blood levels drops then we switch from a, at a metabolic level to uh, ketosis really and, and that's and that's actually good for um cell aging processes and networks so the body needs to need food is kind of what i'm hearing we've evolved like that we've evolved with um periods of famine virtually um and and periods of of feast so so it, that 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 is believed to be the reason why um 
caloric restriction is so effective. And of course, it's effective at all ages, as you know, and has become very popular even with um, younger uh, cohorts. Tell me, I'm, I'm curious, if you don't mind, just how, how you do that, because I'm doing the calculations in my head, and that either means that you start eating around breakfast time and, and finish quite early, or you skip breakfast, kind of have lunch and dinner, but or, or, or how does that work? Do you, so do you I, just, I just, I have two meals within eight hours, um, one at 12, and my last one is about six. Okay, that's, that's how you do yeah. Now that yeah. works for me, but there are some people who can't fast in the morning, and um, particularly if you're a low blood pressure phenotype, then mm -hmm. fasting is not good for you. So you can do it at the other end of the day, or there are lots of other different ones. You can you can have alternate day fasting, for example, um, or um, it's two days fasting a week, and you know five days um, intake, etc. There there are a number of different patterns that you can employ depending on what suits you best best to try it out and see which one is is best for you very good that's very practical so, so experiment work it out but don't worry if you're getting hungry because you're meant to get hungry is that, is that you're gonna... meant to get hungry you're meant to be slightly feeling ketotic but not faint not weak Another thing that I, I really like about your, your book is because there, there are plenty of things that, that, that strike one as difficult to come to exercise, which is something that you're, you're very kind of, uh, you have very good evidence around. But you also uh, uh, stress a lot the kind of the softer side of life that, that friendship, for instance, is remarkably important, that not just that one should probably eat less, but it's very important to sit down with other people and with friends. And important to to kind of share is, is, is that a fair summary yeah I, I I personally love this piece of science myself because um, I love how it's evolved as well as a given now in the scientific community because originally when it was muted by Stephen Wolf you know way back in the 1940s initially he started his research and then published in the 1960s uh, the, the medical community particularly weren't really taking him seriously. I mean, how could it possibly be that social engagement and good friendships, quality friendships, etc., could make a difference to physical health? And I remember at that time, genes were emerging and they were, you know, the sexy area in medicine. So something as, as, as simplistic, if you like, as this was, was poo-pooed. Um, and it took Wolf and his colleagues um, quite a while to to get it published. Eventually, they had a paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association about their observations um, on of Rosetta, which was a town in, in uh, Pennsylvania with about 2,000 inhabitants. And he and his research group had spent some time trying to work out why the heart attack rates in Rosetta were less than half of everywhere else in the UK, uh, the US, where there was an epidemic of uh, myocardial infarction at that time. And eventually it came down to the town itself, the community itself. Eventually he realized that the secret of Rosetto was Rosettans themselves. You know, their attitudes were different, their friendships were different. They had respect for family. There was constant social contacts, uh, contact and a sense of fun pervading Rosetta. 
they had 2,000 inhabitants and something like 22 civic societies. So, so that's so when I say friendship, it's extended friendship and quality. And and then there have been a lot of lovely experiments to show that a, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. You know that 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 is in fact a truism, uh, and that our stress levels both in the nervous system and the hormonal system which accompanies stress are reduced um, if when we're challenged if we had shared a problem shared um, an issue so lots of good science behind this and uh, the communities which we, we've studied um, most which were longest lived proportionately the blue zones they all have this same community fabric um, as part of their society. And remind us, these, these famous blue zones, they're, they're kind of dotted all over the world, aren't they? Okinawa is, I think, one of the yeah. best known, yeah. but they're, they're in South America, they're, they're, as you say, in the United States, so, yeah. uh, and what, what do they share, would you say? So that's what's so fascinating. I mean, they're, they're, they are all over the world, as you've right said, rightly said, you know, from Japan to the USA, Sardinia, um, Icaria and Costa Rica. They share a few things. What I've just described with respect to family structures, two or three generations living in one house, lots of community engagement activity, people constantly in and out of, of homes. I mean, no loneliness, no social isolation. That's the first thing. Um, secondly, um, they have de-stressing rituals. All of them have de-stressing rituals of one type or another. Uh, Sardinia do happy hour with friends. Um, Loma Linda pray. Um, Costa Rica in a carrier um, afternoon nap. And the Japanese have tea uh, rituals where they reflect on ancestry. But the point is they have de-stressing rituals once a day, which is why I kind of go into meditation and... Um, yoga, etc., you know, and feasible de-stressing rituals for, for us. The other thing they share from a from a geographical perspective is they're most of them are on a height and by the sea. And again, our own research in Tilda and that of others has shown that visualizing the sea is is very important for good health and can add anything from four to seven years to lifespan. Um, out with that, they have quite good um, you know, medical care, coupled with a traditional traditions and a traditional style of living. It, physical activity, physical exercise is built into their day. So it's not a matter of getting into a car and driving to the nearest gym. They, you know, they get up, they walk when they have to go to the local stores, when they have to visit their walk, they do a lot of gardening, um, etc. I remember a video by um, Michelle Poulin, who was one of the original um, scientists, uh, epidemiologists, who discovered the longevity and re some of the reasons behind the longevity for these cohorts. He showed a video of a 90-something-year-old lady or early 90s cutting firewood first thing in the morning. And that was something she had done all of her adult life. So that's just an example of how, how levels of physical activity were built in to the fabric of their life. So that's another thing. And, and of course, then plant-based diets predominantly.
It's interesting, isn't it? None of this is rocket science, but it, it does feel as if uh, the way we live now is bringing us away from this kind of life rather than towards it. And in your book, you know, you 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 tell people that that they need to acclimatize to regular periods of switching off uh, and get rid of the phone, cut out the internet, that kind of thing. Uh, are you worried that perhaps we may reach reach kind of if we don't watch ourselves peak longevity here that 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 the life that typically people lead in the west these days is is not conducive to a long life that we may have peaked in terms of longevity so uh that's already um emerging as a possibility first of all just just take a step back from that and since the 1800s when accurate records started to be taken it it, it it's clear that life span has increased by about 2.2 years per decade like that's huge mm. so linear increase and then more recently in the UK particularly there has been an attenuation of that slope such that it's almost seems to have reached a plateau now a number of reasons have been proposed for that and as is at the moment mostly in the United Kingdom that this has been observed, not in other communities as yet. Um, one of the reasons, it might be obesity, um, it might be that there were flu epidemics. This is pre-COVID now, mind you, this statistic I'm talking about. It may have been, it may be uh, dementia, but others are proposing, Michael Marmot and his group particularly from UCL, that it's actually um, socioeconomics and the um, economic situation of persons in the UK has deteriorated significantly over the last number of years. I mean, who whoever thought 10 years ago we'd be speaking of food banks, for example. Mm. So, so um, it's not clear, but it why, why that um, association with longevity um, with each decade appears to be attenuating, but they're the different hypotheses put forward. Um, I think myself, the obesity epidemic will be an issue in curtailing this exceptional uh, increase in our lifespan, unless we, we are in control of it. Having said that, I also believe that our younger generations now are, are many are focused on, on good health. And the earlier you employ um, mechanisms for controlling health, the better your longer term outcome. No question about that. Although it's never too late. That's a message I really want to get across that people shouldn't feel hopeless uh, at age 80 if they decide, OK, right, I'm going to start exercising and I'm going to change my diet and I'm going to make up my mind to see friends three times a week and I'm going to have an extra laugh every day, etc. We can come to laughing in a minute. Uh, it's OK because we know certainly from the point of view of exercise and diet that introduction of change even at age 80 can extend lifespan. So I think that's very hopeful. Yeah, we'll come to laughing in a minute, but let's let's stick with that idea, if you don't mind, for a second, because mm -hmm. many, many listen. We are in a university and many of our listeners are, are young, you know, 18, 19, 20. Uh, and I know when you're 20, it's not always your first priority to to live long. But in a way, um, many aspects of student life, um, the 
kind of the collegiality, the friendship, uh, and so on, uh, perhaps theoretic eating, eating even, are quite healthy. You know, what what is it that uh, are the one or two things that if you're 20, you might say to yourself, I'm really going to do this because it will lead to a, a long, and I think it's important to emphasize, we haven't really touched on this yet, Roseanne, but that it's a healthy life you're talking about, a life free of dementia and other problems associated with old age. It's not just the the, the, the years of your life, but the life in your years that you, you spend a lot of time thinking about and researching. So what, what are the, the one or two things you'd say to somebody who's 20 if they want that kind of life? Yeah, first of all, I would say that Investing in what the what we're recommending in the book is 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 good at all stages of life. So having social contacts, not being lonely, not having social isolation, and these diets, meditation, relaxation, breakout, etc., etc., everything, everything that's that recommended here for healthy lifespan is good at every stage in life, and particularly good for youth, and particularly good for mood. Everything that, that impacts positively on physical health actually has a beneficial knock-on effect also on mood, by which I mean depression and, and anxiety. So it's terribly pertinent for those in their 20s uh, in, that, in that context. And then it's not only good, feel good at each stage in life, but investing in your youth means that each stage in your subsequent life is better, healthier, and you're more in control of it. Mm. You're, 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 you're very strong on, on attitude, I guess, aren't you? Um, you know, that, that, that uh, I, I was very struck by, by uh, the nun. That's a great study that was done by um, David uh, Snowden and his group, um, where um, 678 nuns from Notre Dame uh, convent uh, were studied at when they were around age 80 uh, and they were followed through from then to post-mortem and their brains examined. And, and what the group were interested in is what are the determinants of dementia? What are the things that, that make you most likely to get dementia, the risk factors for dementia? But actually, as part of that whole process, they were able to incorporate because they did very detailed physical and mental health measures, um, you know, what physical health as well as mental health. And uh, when the uh, nuns were in their candidate year, which is the year before they took their final vows, they were all in their 20s. And they wrote a letter at the end of their candidate year to describe briefly their lives to date, um, their experience of the candidate year, and their anticipation and expectations of the rest of their life in the convent. And the research group were able to go back over these letters and disaggregate those who clearly had a positive, optimistic attitude at that time from the letter in their 20s, and those who were much more, so say, less, rigid, less, less optimistic, more rigid um, in, in their approach. Um, and by, by the tone and content of the letters, discriminate positive emotion and negative emotion and found that those who had positive emotion, in other words, a, a, a optimistic attitude towards life, lived longer, were less significantly less likely to get dementia, particularly Alzheimer's 
dementia and were physically much better when they were evaluated at 80 plus. So there was a protective element to being optimistic and positive. And then that I discuss how that translates into how you perceive yourself. You know, in, in other words, you are as young as you feel. At any stage in life, you're as young as you feel. Until we've even shown that to be the case, where we've um, used a, a very a well-known tool, test, to determine aging perceptions. And given that test at baseline, then we, adjusting for all confounders, because we're able to do that because we take so many measures, we have a look at physical outcomes, like this, how fast you walk. Believe it or not, that's one of the best predictors of future health. That's or, interesting. Yeah, or, or memory or attention. And, and so we were able to look at all of those things, and we found that people who had a positive attitude, who felt younger than their chronological age, so they were asked, you know, your age is X, 55, 56, how old do you feel, etc. How much are you in control of your life? And, and questions like that, which indicated a positive outlook um, and a positive perceptions of aging and people who felt they were younger biologically than their chronological age, even when we adjusted for everything else that was going on physically. So it wasn't that they had illnesses, et cetera, that were driving this. Independent of all of that, their perceptions predicted how fast they walked four years later and eight years later. And more recently, we've shown they predict whether or not you die eight years after the assessment. So, um, yeah, you are as young as you feel. And it's good to feel young. And the recommendations we're making around friendship and laughter and sleep and downtime, you know, and cold water, etc. All of those, all of those recommendations contribute to being biologically younger, but also feeling younger. But is it, Roseanne, that these people just feel younger, but are actually kind of physically the same age as people who, who feel older? Or, or is it, you know, in your book, you talk about by the time you're 40, you can kind of be physically 20 years younger than that age or 20 years older. So two 40 year olds, one could be 60 and one could be kind of 20 physically. I mean, is it that that the people who are younger also feel younger? What I'm trying to get at here in an inarticulate way is, is this in your head or is it actually in your body? Well, so that's a really important point, because what we know now is that they're all the one and our thoughts and our perceptions um, and our neural neural pathways influence what's happening peripherally physically. Mm. And the background to that probably is they're both linked to inflammation, inflammatory processes within cells and upregulation or downregulation of DNA in a cell, which which drives protein production. So it, it's it's pretty remarkable that if well, I come back to loneliness because there's so much research on this. But if if somebody is lonely or, you know, painfully socially isolated, so, it, you know, it's not what they want. It's not their choice. Feeling lonely, that actually influences inflammation in cells throughout the body and accelerates brain disease and cardiovascular disease, for example, and probably cancer, as does stress. 
So our mind and body are integrally linked, and that also applies to how we perceive ourselves aging, our positive attitudes or otherwise. It strikes me that, that um, mm. uh, you know, we're talking on the day actually that people no longer have to wear masks in, in most situations, in almost all situations now mm. in the Republic. And it strikes me that COVID has been an incredibly isolating mm. and lonely time for the vast bulk of people compared with their normal lives. Uh, is it too early to posit that that COVID will have a bad effect on people's ageing? No, no, it isn't too early to posit. So, I mean, I suppose that's the negative approach. And we do know from data, from the TILDA data, for example, we were able to do a sweep of data collection in our participants during COVID. And the experience of loneliness and depression increased threefold during COVID. We had done, we'd just done a baseline sweep pre-COVID. So the comparisons were were very um, um, clear. Uh, but but there's also lots of emerging um, data showing that COVID has impacted significantly on mental health in young people in the same way and um, with respect to depression and loneliness and anxiety. Uh, and so that's that's the fact and that's negative. However, to try and take something from that that we can do something about and, and partially sol a solution to it is that we're aware of that now as a society and we should be looking much more towards how we can engage. We know about the science of social engagement. We know about the science of loneliness and we should be making, you know, triple efforts for all age groups to be much more socially engaged and for even at a even at a geopolitical level, even at an infrastructural level, for us to develop communities within Ireland, instead of building big um, isolated or isolating um, complexes, apartments or housing estates, that we focus more on how to build infrastructure that encourages community and community engagement. Yes, I, th I think poor old David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, before he messed up with Brexit, he, he made somebody Minister of Loneliness, and people yeah. were kind of a quirk. Is that, is that, that's right, isn't it? That uh, is right. I, I talk about that. It was actually during Theresa May's um, right. tenure um, that they a Minister for Loneliness because they had done a population-based study, all ages, and found that there were nine million people in the UK who were lonely like painfully lonely, loneliness that we know impacts on physical and, and mental health. Um, in that context, of, developed this, this minister's post, but I don't know that there's been anything, you know, very tangible to emerge from that since because there have been so many other things that changed in the United Kingdom. Let's just finish on a, on a slightly higher note than where I brought us over COVID, which is the importance of laughter and, and you know you're a big advocate for basically uh, laughing every day aren't you, uh, do you wanna... yes yes i mean what, what i mean we're wired to be happy and to share the happy experience with others through laughter L laughter is actually a social behavior and, and it's used by us to bond to communicate so you can actually tell the strength of a relationship uh, between two people and from the tone and the type of laughter, everybody will be familiar with this, you know, the laughter of a child being tickled is very different to the laughter from someone who's obliged to respond to their boss's joke. 
or the laughter between two good friends. I mean, they're all different, but we can tell, we can immediately tell the type of relationship um, being held uh, between those persons on the basis of laughter. A, a child laughs 400 times a day, but as we get older, we tend to laugh much less. And there's some studies showing that older adults only laugh on average 15 times a day. Actually, at the time I wrote uh, the chapter, the, book, uh, the, the, the chapter on laughter, you know, I'm, I'm working in St. James's Hospital and uh, it was in the middle of COVID and it was that, six o'clock in the evening when I was going back over it. And I just stopped and reflected and I thought, gosh, I, I don't think I laughed at all today because there wasn't much to laugh about at that particular time, to be to be off, uh, honest. But anyway, so laughter is about it's it's more about much more than about humor. It's it's about social bonding. And if we have a conversation with friends, again coming back to friendship, why it's so important. About ten percent of our conversation with a friend is spent laughing. So that's one of the quickest way of of, of actually laughing. But it's it's really good for for us to to laugh. It, it has huge beneficial uh, impacts. Again, I come back to the neurological system, the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic autonomic systems. It's, it's fantastic for that. It releases endorphins, the chemicals produced naturally by the nervous system to cope with pain or stress. You know, the feel-good chemicals that are released after run, say, serotonin and dopamine. Um, and they make us feel calm and poised and confident and relaxed. Um, and, and also... Uh, it, it has effects, believe it or not, on the immune system, on the killer T cells. And we've heard a lot about those uh, during COVID, which help us fight infections. And, and given that immune function declines with age, you know, boosting endorphins is particularly beneficial um, as we get older for that reason. Also, higher stress hormones weaken our immune system. So lowering stress hormones through, through laughter um, is one way that laughter benefits immunity and, and reduces infections. Actually, it's, it's funny that even the anticipation of mirthful laughter is good for us. Um, you, you increase your endorphins by 87% anticipating uh, a video you're about to put on when you're looking for a funny video. And, and cortisol and adrenaline are reduced by as much as 70%. And they're the sort of stress hormones that we want to keep as low as possible. So, so yeah. So laughter is terribly good for us at a physical and a biological level. And you mentioned video there. I mean, it, it is as simple as you know, put on a your favorite comedian or or your favorite kind of comedy show, rather than watching some kind of gloomy gloom thing, and and you're doing yourself good. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Presumably, uh, best thing of all is a funny friend or a funny partner or whatever. But but it's a it's a good second, is it? But remember that laughter is also about bonding and sharing. So that is a good second. But if you can do it with someone, if you can watch something funny with a friend, that's even better. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, look, on that on that very easy, uh, very easy way of uh, increasing longevity, we'll we'll finish off this this podcast and uh, we'll come next week. As I say, we're going to rejoin Roseanne and we're going to talk about how exercise, sleep, sex makes you live longer. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Roseanne Kenny. Very welcome. Thank you.